0: To Nehemiah chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning. We'll be camping out mostly there. It's Nehemiah chapter 4. And now, uh, as you're probably gathering by the fact we're starting in Nehemiah chapter 4, this is not the first sermon in the series that I've been doing. We've been actually going through the book of Nehemiah, learning things about God's glory and what God's glory means for us in our lives here specifically through the life of Nehemiah. And if you'd like to understand a little bit more closely what I'm, what I'm trying to get at, remember that the Bible, when it's talking about things that, uh, that have happened in the past, is talking about God's big story throughout history. God's, uh, if you want to use the uh, big $5 university word, the meta-narrative that God is talking about. Uh, Nehemiah is part of it. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob way back are part of it. Peter and Paul are part of it. Jesus is the center of it. But we are also standing in part of it. So when we're looking at Nehemiah, don't just imagine that Nehemiah is some guy back in history that we can you know, just talk about as if he's some abstraction. In a lot of ways, he's one of our brothers. <laughs> he's someone who has lived a life of godliness in a period where it was difficult to live a life of godliness, and he's giving us examples and giving us signs of how God works. Now, since I've been teaching from Nehemiah, people have been sending me this little meme thing. Uh, I don't know if uh, you've probably seen it. It refers to, I'm not going to put it on the screen. Uh, I'm against that kind of thing. But it refers to, have you ever heard of Donald Trump? Anybody here heard of Donald Trump? Okay, a few people are nodding their heads, a few people are raising their hands, yeah, okay, good, good. Donald Trump is famous for having said that, you know, he's going to build a wall between the United States and Mexico, and he's going to make the Mexicans pay for it. And so, because I'm teaching from Nehemiah, people send me this little meme, this picture of Nehemiah building the wall around Jerusalem and saying, built the wall around Jerusalem, got the Persian king to pay for it. <laughs> Which is exactly what he did, Nehemiah for president. Now... That's, that's a good example of the effects, the acts that are going on there, but I think that's actually a misunderstanding of the theme, the, the, the overall idea that's being drawn out of it in Nehemiah. When we're talking about Nehemiah, and this is kind of the umbrella I want everybody to have when I'm doing, doing anything in these kinds of messages from Nehemiah, Nehemiah is about how God, in his glory and in his faithfulness, and his goodness drives his people, helps his people, provides for his people, and helps his people to persevere. When we started, I talked about how God's glory, the awesomeness of God and the promises of God drove Nehemiah to his knees when he heard about the problems that were going on in Jerusalem. So the glory of God helps his people drives his people to pray to God. Then I talked about how God, by his sovereign action, overwhelms the king of the Persians to actually provide Nehemiah both with the time to go to Jerusalem and build the temple, uh, build the wall, actually, the temple was Ezra. Sorry about that. But to build the wall around Jerusalem, and God provided for him and gave him safety and gave him strength and gave him favor with the people that he was going to be talking to. All of that was the second message. And then I talked about going through Nehemiah chapter three, probably one of those chapters that you skim over because it's just a big list of names. I talked about how the glory of God helps people to work, in favor- work for what God is doing among them. And I said also that because it's god's work because it's working through what god has called them to there is no such thing as a mundane job yesterday uh, i watched as uh the work crews here the people the people of the church came together to work and do a whole bunch of menial tasks for the church i watched how you know a guy who teaches at the marine institute was sitting on the on the lip of a of a uh well, holding a little, a little pipe for about, what, half an hour uh, just so that it wouldn't fall down, and anu- while another guy from the Marine Institute just came down and put a, some kind of uh, thing on the end of it. I don't know, I have absolutely no technical skills when it comes to this thing, but it looked like a fairly menial task to me. You wanna know something interesting about that fairly menial task? If that was done for the glory of God, that was one of the most important things that you've actually ever seen people do. It's something that's remembered before the throne of God. It's something that gives God joy. If the something menial is done for the glory of God, it's not menial. There's no such thing as insignificant work in the kingdom of God. That doesn't happen. And so if if you're called to stand up in front of people like this and preach God's word, which is an amazing blessing, that's great. If you're called to, as I saw this morning, pick up little hole, uh, punched holes off the floor in the library to make it look a little cleaner, that's glorious. Not because it's ind- independently glorious in itself, but because it's participating in the glory of God. And right now I've got kind of this thing going on in my head. While I was preparing this sermon, I mean, one of the things about (laughs) focusing so much on the glory of God is that God sometimes gives you visions of just how glorious he is, just a sliver of it, because if he gave me the full thing, I'd explode. But you, you begin to feel a bit of the glory of God, and you're feeling right now, I'm trying to explain it to you, and I'm trying to say it to you, and I'm only getting at least a, a, little, a little sliver of it. So, you know, bear with me a little bit. I'm, I'm feeling a little inadequate on this point. My desire of above all of this is to just draw your eyes away from the things that we're doing here, and remember that the things that we're dealing with are above everything. They're, they're in Christ, they're in God, and in that, because We're looking towards God because God is the overall value, nothing is is menial. Now today, we're going to have to deal with something probably a little bit more um, depressing in some ways. You see, one of the things that Christians like to believe, especially here in the West, is that because we're Christians, because we're good people, most people are going to like us. If you do the right thing, and if you do things that people are that are that's good, that's you know following after God, nobody's going to have a problem with you. Unfortunately, that's not true. That's not what the Bible is telling us. Um, Matt Chandler, in one of the conferences I went to, uh, said said that this: I you need to prepare your people to suffer. And honestly, this message is going to be about a little bit about that. Because let's look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Now when Samballot heard that we were building the wall, remember Samballat was the guy at the beginning who really got mad when Nehemiah came and because he was bringing favor to the Jews. When Samballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. Now get that idea just how angry he is. He's repeating it, angry and greatly enraged. Uh, They do have different nuances in the Hebrew, but if you want to think about it, if you want to think about any negative, angry emotion that somebody could have, all the nuances of it, that was Samballot. He felt really, really mad. And he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, so not in in a small group, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones? Will they they restore it? Sorry. Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, not to be outdone by Sanballat, was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for this is Nehemiah speaking. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the breaches were being closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. May God add blessing to the reading of his word. One of the difficulties that I think Christians sometimes have is understanding that godliness has two reactions. There are two reactions that people will generally have to seeing God's glory being manifested in individuals, and in peoples, and in the situations that they have going on around them. One reaction is the reaction of people who actually love God, who who see the glory of God and they rejoice in seeing God go forward. That's kind of where we get worship in the church here. That's what we're talking about. That's why the songs all talk about the great acts that God has done for us, most especially through the gospel of Jesus Christ, by which we're being saved, by which we were saved, and by which we will be saved. That's the first reaction, the reaction that most Christians, most people who've been moved by God will have but that's not the reaction most people have. And those of you who became Christians later in life know what the first reaction is, because you've had it. The reaction that I had when I first learned about, the godly, about godliness, when I saw people being godly around me, around me uh, I kind of fit with Sam Ballot. Angry and greatly enraged, indignant, spitting nails because these horrible, horrible people were doing things that don't make any se- doesn't make any sense. And they're saying things about me that I don't want to believe because I was a sinner. I enjoyed sin. And because when people tell me that what I'm doing is wrong, I didn't argue with them. I didn't, you know, like look at what they were saying and try to figure out, okay, maybe they've got a point. I got mad. And that doesn't happen all the time because, you know, honestly, we don't always talk about the things that God tells us. We're not always living in full glory of God. But when you have God working deeply in your life, people who don't know God really don't get it and they never will, because in some cases, well, actually in all cases, there are two completely different values going on here. One value, those of us who have been, who've come to the Lord, who have seen his glory, who have accepted Jesus Christ's righteousness on our behalf, his death, right, vicarious death on the cross, we see God and we see glory. We see beauty. And you know, it doesn't happen all the time but we want to be closer to that beauty. We want to be into that beauty. But, those are, but when we haven't seen that as beautiful, when we don't see that as glorious, we see it as an affront, as an attack on us. As something that's designed to tell us that we're wrong, that we're terrible people. So it's not, it's not really all that surprising that people then oppose it. And just in case you're wondering, th- this <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. Now when Sembalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? They're starting off by making fun of the Jews. And not only they don't stay alone in this. Tobiah the Ammonite, you know, not not really wanting to be left out of this, and also having an opposition, was beside him, and he said, "Yes, what are they are building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their wall- stone wall. The first step is people will make fun of it. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Uh, I watched, a, I, I, I ill-advisedly wa- watched a free thing from uh, net." Uh, from iTunes yesterday, called Preacher, which is about a show that they're releasing in the U.S. this year, about uh, a preacher who is inf- I- who is inhabited by a demon and, dis- and want- is going to work to overthrow God. These, they're making fun of our of what we believe. It's kind of a messed up a messed up story, but that was released yesterday. Um, if you talk, if you're a Christian in most parts of the world. Or most parts of the West, anyway. And you go to you go to school, or you go to places. One of the things that people are going to do a lot, before they know you're a Christian, is make fun of Christianity. I don't know if you've if you've had that experience. When I'm sitting in a class full of uh, full of very very intelligent people at the university, and we're you know discussing something or other, and then we talk about well fundamentalist Christians, and they say how terrible they are, how. Uh, how odd these evangelicals are and how hypocritical they are. And then you know like you, uh, I have to do the whole sheepish thing of you know raising my hand. I kind of resemble that remark. <laughs> but it doesn't change the fact that that happens. And you know what? It does kind of hurt when it happens. I I don't know if you've ever, ever had the experience, but it does. At least it, do, it hurts me. But I shouldn't be surprised. Because this, is, this isn't just something that you see in Nehemiah. If you look uh, a little further in John chapter 3, verse 16 to 21, you'll see something similar. Now, everybody knows John three sixteen, 16, right? It's, it's on football games. It's on the placards that people have all over the place. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We can put that on a coffee cup, right? Let's keep reading. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Beautiful example of this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. This is the gospel. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. You see, there are two different reactions to God. If you know God, if you know that you have nothing to fear before God, that because through Jesus Christ, you have nothing to hide away from God when you walk before him, there's no reason to stay away. Friends, if you are a believer this morning, if you know Jesus Christ, there is no reason for you to be scared right now. You can bring your sin before him. You can bring your goodness before him. Anything that you do can be brought before him because he loves you, he cares for you. The sin that you have, he will help you to fight and you can actually have victory over it. The, the good things that you do, you can bring before him as praise items to him that will be quickened in his glory. And that's good and that's noble, but let's face it, if you don't know Jesus Christ, honestly, you do really have a lot to fear right now. Because your sin isn't paid for by Christ if you don't believe in Christ. And because of that, and obviously people are not going to like it. This, this is why Jesus is not really a very popular man in the modern world. Because he does tell you that things are wrong. Things that we as a culture believe are right. You know, the the world that I live in, if I say that I am pro-life, people think I hate women. That's something that you'll see in the news. You, they, they'll say that you hate women's rights if you think that an unborn child should be saved. Um, now, to be clear, if abortion is not the worst sin in the world, to be clear, uh, lots of people have gone through it and repented afterwards. God still saves people. You can bring any sin before him. If you're in Christ, you're safe. But let's face it, most people would like to believe that whatever we want to do is okay. I mean... Everything in the world is based on the idea, if I can do it, if I believe it, if, I, if it's something that I feel is right, then I should be do, able to do it as long as I don't hurt anybody else. And when you say that God rules and reigns over all things, that God is infinitely glorious, that God is the thing that we were created for, we were created to praise him and to honor him in everything we do, we're saying that all those things that we want to do that don't honor God are wrong. And there's going to be friction there. If you love the darkness, you aren't going to love the light. Jesus is the light. It's a simple fact. But it's not just, you don't see it just in John. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. But thanks be to God who is in Christ always, leads us in triumphal through procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere so notice paul is telling you telling us that in our lives in our actions in the things we do god is spreading a fragrance of the beauty of his glory and we should rejoice in that but be careful because that fragrance isn't sweet to everybody for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So wherever we go, we spread the fragrance of God. If you're in Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ is by his Holy Spirit living in you and changing you and making you act certain ways and think certain things and love everyone in the ways that it's we're called, you will be a fragrance to others. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and the other, a fragrance from life to life. By the very nature of living in the glory of God, the people who are enemies of God's glory are going to dislike you. B. <laughs> that's not great things to hear, but that's actually the fact. Or let's go back to Matthew, chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Jesus speaking again as he was in John chapter 3. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Friends, if you live in Christ, expect opposition. It's going to happen. A friend of mine asked me during a Bible study recently, "Why? What happens if you don't feel any persecution or opposition?" And, and, and I, there's only two answers to that. Theoretically, you only know Christians. You only know people who are real Christians, who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and who are uh, who are working in and, and you know living Christian lives. If that's if that's true. You're always going to be the fragrance of life to life because everybody around you sees Jesus as life. They know God. God is sweet to them. The light is beautiful to them. They seek after it. And they'll love you for it. Or, this is the more difficult one, maybe you're really just not much of a fragrance. So the fact is we will face opposition. Being in God's glory will bring opposition. It's just the way it is. We don't live in a world that is in submission to God. Jesus calls this world ruled by the prince of the power of the air, Satan. This is not home for us. Not yet. We should expect opposition. Nehemiah faced opposition. Nehemiah knew that opposition would come because, well, He was in a time where the opposition was pretty clear. We will face opposition. But how does Nehemiah react to that opposition? This is important. Now, before I do this, I should tell you that Nehemiah is not... uh, When you read the book of Nehemiah, don't think that Nehemiah is the hero of the book of Nehemiah. I know his name's on the title. When you see the name of Nehemiah as the title of the book, it means that he's the subject of the book. The hero of the book is actually God. Nehemiah is just a dude. He's like us. He has to go through things. He has to live things. He has to live the ways we live. Now look at the reaction that he has. Uh, This is verses 4 and 5. Hear, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you in, uh, to, the, uh, to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, what's happening here? Nehemiah feels the jeering, the opposition. The things that are being said negatively about him and about his people, and he reacts as well. Most of us would, to be honest. At least I would. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever ever had the experience of being, you know, kind of bullied. When you're being bullied, you don't really think, oh well, I really hope God saves this bully and you know turns him to turns him to salvation. If you do believe that, that's great. But honestly, in my own sinfulness, that's not exactly what the, way, the way I would believe. I wanted God to smite them. I really did. And that's essentially what Nehemiah is saying. I, I want God to smite these people. This is not Nehemiah being his best. It's one of the greatest things about the book of Nehemiah. You see Nehemiah actually writing down what he's actually thinking. Not the best thing overall if he wants if Nehemiah wants to be considered a a a noble person, but it's good for us to see what God does through people. He is angry, (laughs) and he doesn't want to. He doesn't do what Christ actually does tell us to do, which is to pray to love those who persecute us, to pray for our enemies. Instead, he actually wants uh, things to happen. But notice the way that he thinks about it. Verse five. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out f- from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the, pre- provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, uh, just aside for a moment, footnote. Right now, if you're looking at the NIV or uh, CEV or a few other translations, the translation actually doesn't say it that way. If you have that problem and you're looking at your Bible and it doesn't say what I just what I'm what you're seeing how I have underlined here, look at the footnote. The footnote will take you there. That's a, a pro tip for Bible readers. When you're reading a translation of the Bible, any translation of the Bible, make sure to check the footnotes. They are actually important. The people who translate these things are really uh, do hard work and they try to understand very accurately what the Bible is saying. And On another note, the fact that there are two different translations, and I'm going to be relying on this one here for for this, doesn't mean that your Bible is less trustworthy. It just means that your Bible has a different translation. All Bibles, even the worst translation, is still at some level the word of God. As long as it tries to be a faithful translation of the Bible, it's the word of God. End of footnote. (laughs) Notice though that the part of the reason that Nehemiah is angry is before they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah is not just angry because they've attacked him; not just angry because they're saying he's saying they're talking smack about the wall. He's angry because they're undercutting God's glory before the builders, and that. If you love the glory of God, if you're called according to the glory of God, if you desire to see God glorified in everything around you, if you see people attacking the glory of God, that should actually make you displeased. If you go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, you'll see a little bit more clearly that this is the heart that Nehemiah has. When he's beginning his prayer before to God just when he heard the problems that were going on in Jerusalem, he said, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued in fasting fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice Now, now be careful here. We, we tend to paper over little phrases like that, you know, oh great and awesome God, because we say it in prayers all the time, you know, oh God, gracious and loving Father, it becomes something that we become used to, you repeat it enough, you don't understand it, you don't think about it, but he's saying when he says, oh great, uh, the great and awesome God, he's actually saying words that mean something, when he says that God is great, he means that God is above all things. When he says that God is awesome, it means, not like what, when, when we say awesome, you know, just something okay here. He means he is moved to awe at this point. Get the feeling. Uh, if you're standing, uh, the feeling I get usually if I'm going out to Cape Spear, you know, when a really bad storm is just offshore, and you see the waves Crashing on the side of the rocks, and they're going up like twenty, thirty feet into the into the air. And you know, you, you know that if you were anywhere near that water, you'd be dead. Now, the water is just powerful. It's beautiful. It's majestic. It's doing great things. The the feeling you get if you're standing at uh, at the edge of Niagara Falls or at the edge of the Grand Canyon something that's great and big and powerful and dangerous. Something that me moves you to awe. When, the, when, we, when I say that, that's what Nehemiah means by awesome. When he thinks of God, when he looks at the God he sees in scripture and knows personally through prayer, he knows God to be awesome. And that's the way he's praying. And so get, get the way he's then reacting to the way that other people are talking about God. The fact that they've been saying negative things about what, what God can do through his people. Um, I'm not married. I'm imagining, though, that if I was married and somebody talked smack about my wife in front of me, he better duck because he's getting about a right hook followed by a left hook. That's what's happening. I don't, I'm not very strong, but that's what's happening. You don't talk smack about my, uh, about my wife around me. Well, in some ways, Nehemiah is saying, you don't talk spack about my God around me because I love my God and I desire to be like him and everything that I see is beautiful and valuable around me. That's my God. You see, we need to be this kind of people because this is how Nehemiah gets through this because look at what happens right after this. Instead of just uh, verse 6, so we built the wall. It's a very short phrase, but it's a very simple one. Facing the opposition, facing the negativity, facing the things that people are making fun of them and undercutting them for it, they don't respond by saying, well, maybe if we make the wall a little smaller, they'll like us. Maybe if we stop the wall and we have some, you know, uh, resp- uh, responses with the people around us, we, we, we'll have meetings and stuff. Maybe we can, you know, negotiate something out. They don't say, we really hate these people, so we're going to fight after them and beat them up, and then they'll let us build the wall because we've, we've overcome them. Ha, 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 ha. That's not what they do. Instead, they just build the wall. You see, there's a, there's a way that godliness works through faithfulness in the face of opposition. While you may actually feel anger, while you may feel the negative things around you, while you may be insecure about what God's doing in your life around you, you still remain faithful because God is at work. You don't need to get angry at other people and you know, and you may wish things bad of bad them with God, but you know what, you're not going to do negative things to them because this is in God's hands. The the Bible says, vengeance is mine, I shall repay, saith the Lord. It says it a bunch of times, and generally when God repeats himself, you should listen. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I shall repay. You know that. But you also know that you can't back down on what God has told you to do. If God is calling you to do something, you've got to do it. If God is calling you to be holy in your, in your school, in your life, in your work, people may get mad at you, people may try to uh, do mean things to you. As one friend of mine, a, a guy, he became a Christian while I was in college. He was working at a programming firm that tended to use pirated software, and he said, look, I can't use pirated software to do my job, that's... That's illegal, that's immoral. And, his, and he's a very talented programmer, so everybody was mad at him for it because you know the, he, they couldn't get rid of him, they couldn't fire him, but they were really mad at him and getting angry. But he didn't have a choice. Because of what God had called him to do and what God was calling him to do, he had to act in accordance with what God said. He had to, because he valued God and he loved God, he desired to be like God, so he needed to glorify God, so he gave his work over to God. And he just continued on. He said, I will just not use the pirated software. And he didn't. It made his job a thousand times harder. But he still did it. And you know what? The other people around him didn't like it. Some of them didn't respect it, but a few did. A few did see what God was doing through him. A few began to see the beauty of of integrity. And they too became... Christians because they saw God working. Again, it's an aroma of life to life and death to death. But you just go ahead and be faithful. But this doesn't make it any less a problem. I'd like to say that, you know, it's going to mean that, you know, people are going to love you and they'll, they'll see you do, do heroic things and pe- everybody is going to say, wow, you're awesome. Sadly, that's not the case. It, wh- it might be the case in some cases. But usually it's not. It wasn't the case for Nehemiah, verses 6 to 9. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height for the people who had a mind to work. The people, again, still desiring God. Back the old sermon, if you want to see it, you go back through the, the archives. You can find it on uh, our website. But because the people had a mind to work, the, bu- the wall is built. But when Sembalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and the breaches were being closed, and they were were repentant. No. They were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we pray to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Again, they still have to be faithful. But let's face it, sometimes God will help people come to saving knowledge of God through your work. Other times he won't. And in both ways, God's going to be glorified. The ungodly still oppose. Even if you do the right thing, even if you're, you're good and noble and holy and you do everything right, don't be surprised when people still oppose you. And you see, that's important to remember, because when I, was gro- when I first became a Christian, people would tell me all about this open door, closed door thing, you know, God opened a door to this thing, and he closed a door to this thing, and that, that's how I was supposed to figure out my Christian life, and you know, if, if, if people don't like me doing this thing, well, they're closing the door to that, and I shouldn't really be doing that. Unfortunately, that's not a biblical message. Um, open doors, closed doors, that's part of what you need to be thinking about, but there are other things that are valuable in discerning the will of God. Let's face it, God sometimes tells you to go through closed doors, and he tells you to uh, not go through open ones. It happens all the time. And this is the case that we have to face. You cannot just undercut your, what God calls you to do simply because other people do not like it. It's just the way it is. And this is important actually because we've probably got a lot of things going on uh, among us that are going to need to th- we're going to need to be thinking about this. We need to understand and understand the the things we've learned from Nehemiah chapter four. First of all, we need to be careful of where our affections lie. Sometimes we decide to do something for God, we follow God's, uh, God's will, and we think that God is calling us to do something. And then we start doing it, we face the opposition, the opposition comes up, and then we just get, get, our, get stubborn and we say, we're going to follow through and do this because I'm stubborn and because I'm going to follow through with whatever I've said to do. Well, then you've lost your affection, you're not doing it for the glory of God. That's going to be very important for us here at, at Calvary over the next few years. Uh, if Pastor Steve's vision uh, comes to fruition, and I mean the vision that the elders have generally uh, fall, uh, brought on to, I have to tell you, we're going to face opposition. It's just the way it is. Think about what the vision is. We're going to build a, a church building and we're going to start planting churches. We're going to start hope, helping, to, helping the world around us here in St. John's, Newfoundland, around Newfoundland, throughout Canada and to the ends of the earth. We're going to help people see and savor Jesus Christ as ultimately valuable. We're going to be teaching the word of God from a whole bunch of different places around Newfoundland and Labrador. By God's grace, we're going to see, hopefully, hundreds of people come to know and love and serve Jesus Christ to repent of their sins, to turn from their evil ways and live. If you see that, though, in the world that we're in right now, not everybody's going to be happy with that. We're going to face opposition. It's just going to be the way it is. And we have to be careful because it would be very easy that when we face opposition, it's very easy for us to just say, well, I'm just gonna, we're just going to tone it down a little bit and we're not going to say the things that the gospel says that we need to say. It would be easy to do that. Maybe, maybe people would like us more. It would be easy to become seeker-sensitive and you know, to use all the technology and stuff to instead of you know, preaching the gospel, to preach nice, feel-good messages. Churches get very big doing that. We could do that too, and we shouldn't. That would be evil. We need to keep following Jesus. It could be easy for us to become very angry at the world around us, to become angry at the people who who are oppressing us and who are opposing us and pretending that they need to be overwhelmed and we need to use the law against them and we need to use our voting power against them so that we can change, the, change everything and leave them not any more saved than they were before, They're just opposed to us. We could become very protectionist. We could say we're going to retreat into our little bubble and we're going to just talk to people who agree with us because it feels really good to just talk to people who agree with us. We'll avoid those people for whom the gospel of Christ is, a, uh, is the smell of death to death. We can't do that either because then the people who God has called, the people whose God has loved, God created, and God is saving here in St. John's and all over the world, then they would not hear. We can't retreat. We can't tone it down. We can't pretend that, it's not, that the gospel isn't what it is. We have to stand for what is said. What is done? <laughs> we have to remain faithful. But in order to do that, there's only one way. We have to have our affections set on God. When we fall away, when we start seeing other things, we need to set our affections on God. We need to glory in God. And I'm using the verb form of glory there. It means that we gain our highest uh, affections, our respect, we exult in, we desire God. Friends, we will not be able to do anything that God calls us to without this. This is the center point of the gospel. That we, It's not just that we are saved from our sin. We are saved to the glory of an almighty God who loves us and cares for us desires for us, not just temporal good, not just uh, we have an okay life for 70 years, then die and go to hell. He desires eternal joy for us. Friends, nothing compares to God in for the affections that we have. So we need to glory in God. And that's the only way we're going to be able to do this. This is where our affections have to be. And in knowing that these are, th- these are affections, we have to seek to be faithful regardless of the situations. Regardless of the situation. If everybody loves us and we get parades and, you know, they give us keys to the city and stuff, awesome, whatever. If they, if they make fun of us, if there are editorials printed against us, awesome, praise Jesus. If, as we individually live our Christian lives around us, friends of ours say, you know, I think you're amazing. I, I can't imagine what, what you've got that, that allows you to have this kind of strength and power to live in the face of opposition, of suffering, of difficulty. And they'll, they'll come to Jesus when you say, please come to church. And they come to church with you and they hear the gospel preached from the pulpit by somebody who preaches much better than I do. That'll be great. If you have to live the Christian life and everybody says that you're a bit of a nerd, that you're worthless, that you are a terrible person, that you're a hateful person, that you're a bigot, that you're a homophobe, or whatever they come up with, whatever new names they come up with to call you for being a righteous person, praise God and be righteous still. We need to be faithful. But the only way, again, we're going to be faithful is if our primary value is going to be the glory of God. Don't fall into Nehemiah's trap, the trap that Nehemiah fell into in this, into this part. You still have to be faithful. Our God tells us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, said directly in the text. We need to pray for people who don't know Jesus Christ. Because when you think about it, just think about it for a second, the people who oppose the glory of God in the world around us, they really can't help it. They don't see the glory of God. They don't see it as valuable. It's not, it's not that they've sat down and, thinks, and think, how can I defeat these evil Christians today? And they twist their little mustaches, you know, imagining that they'll tie you to a railway track or something like that. They're not dime store villains, they're people. They're people who just don't see the glory of God as, as valuable as it is. And before I saw the glory of God for what it really is, before I was able to see Jesus as more surpassingly valuable than everything else, I thought like they did. Without the work of God and in in, in God's Holy Spirit in, in their lives, they may never see this. So we need to pray for them. They're victims of their own sin as it stands right now. Our oppressors are not our, our, our number one enemy. We war not against flesh, but the powers and principalities in the heavenly places. I think I read that in a book somewhere. It's a good book. We need to pray for those who don't know Jesus Christ. So, haltingly, I just wanted to say, this is the number one, the the point overall. God's glory is above all things. We need to see and savor the glory of God in everything we see, see and do. And then we need to live accordingly. In the face of opposition, in the face of accolades in the face of mundane tasks, in the face of glorious tasks, in the face of want and in the face of plenty. We need to glory in God. Let's pray. Lord God, you know how I feel right now. You know that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts between the marrow and the flesh, that by your grace, you are going going to work things that I can't even imagine among us. Lord God, I pray that the people here have heard a much better sermon than I preached. I pray that the things that you have are teaching us that the things that you see valuable are going to be graven in our hearts. Lord God, give us a vision for your glory so that we can live the life we're called to live. Lord God, where I've said stupid things, I pray that you'd, forget it, that you'd help us to forget it. Because in all things, we want to praise you. We want to know you. We want to love you. We want to live for you. And all God's people said, amen.